This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. today's program. As my term as High Commissioner draws to a close, this Council's milestone 50th session will be the last which I brief. Afghanistan is a priority of my office. It was so frustrating trying to work on human rights during the Taliban period, and we didn't do anything really very effective. What we have learned in the United Nations is that such processes must be led by nationals. We must never come with our own models. I'll refer to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a document, frankly, that is still largely aspirational. It crystallized the principle that human rights are universal and committed states to the promotion and protection of all human rights for all people, regardless of their political, economic and cultural systems. In one way, the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights is a new experience for the UN over the last 20 years, and every High Commissioner has taken it a notch up. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. Now, as many of our listeners will know, the search is on for what has been called the toughest job in the United Nations, that of Human Rights Commissioner. You heard a number of former commissioners in our opening sequence there, starting with the current Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, who announced in June that she wouldn't seek a second four-year term. That news made headlines around the world. Some linked her decision to leave to her recent mission to China, which was widely criticised by human rights groups. In fact, UN Human Rights Commissioners rarely do more than a single four-year term. Since the post was first created, only one, Navi Pillay, served an additional two years, at the special request of UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon. So, in today's programme, and in the next episode of Inside Geneva in two weeks' time, we're going to take a deep dive into what the role is, what challenges a human rights commissioner faces, and what qualities are needed to do the job successfully. Since, as we go to air today, there's no reliable information on who the next human rights commissioner might be, We're going to start by talking to someone who has done the job. I sort of felt that it would be the job you do just before retirement because you could never secure a future employment after after it. Zaid Rad al-Hussein was Michel Bachelet's predecessor. He became known for his outspoken approach. He too chose to serve only four years. Rather than you worry about how they may react to your statements, They ought to be worrying about what you might be saying about them. Not long after he left office, I had a long chat with him about working for the UN and about the challenges that come with trying to defend and promote human rights. This interview was recorded before Michelle Bachelet announced her departure and before Russia invaded Ukraine. But I think listeners will find Zaid's reflections uncannily relevant to the difficult times we live in now. He began by telling me that his long career at the UN came about almost by accident. I was asked by my parents to take my younger brother to the United States because I had a driver's license. I could rent a car and drive him to his campus. 
And on the way back, I um, I was in New York for a few hours and I had nothing to do. The flight left late to Jordan. And so I called up uh, this friend at the UN and um, we got together and he said that they were recruiting for the former Yugoslavia. Um, and so I filled out my form and five or six months later, I was in, in Zagreb. And I think that was the pivotal moment of my life. I think for you or for all of us who were there in the former Yugoslavia, it gets under your skin because it is the complete human experience, everything in it, from heroism to cowardice to the most vile criminality. Um, All the major powers were drawn into it. And you could see where all the deficiencies were. And so when I came out of that experience, I think, like so many of my colleagues, we were all changed by it. I mean, changed by it in a very major way. And um, I think that then put me on track to what it is that I I later was uh, able to do. And so I learned a a great many lessons out of that experience, the hypocrisy, the cowardice of states, the willful manipulation of of information to suit a particular aim. And, And the heroism of people on the ground was astonishing. You talked about heroism and about cowardice. Do you think that both those qualities you could attribute to the United Nations during that conflict? Well, the heroism at the level of people in the field, yes. I mean, there's so many heroic acts, you know, of people risking their lives by doing almost sort of what would normally be considered reckless behavior for the sake of others, uh, you know, crossing contact lines while the fire, uh, ongoing shelling on both sides or firing across the contact line with no regard to their safety. And, you, you know, you, you heard about this time and again, and it was, it was extremely impressive what it was that humanitarian actors were also willing to do. And contrast this against the cowardice at higher levels of government around the world, but also within the UN, we were too timid. We were too worried about our own mandate, about our own presence, as opposed to what it was ultimately we were there to try and do. Uh, The problem is that we have too much of the UN that seeks just to please governments and bends over backwards, thinks that its job is just to please. You know, it has to be seen as independent of any influence of government, must exercise that independence and must exercise that independence in a way that's where it's respected, not to genuflect every time a government representative approaches the UN and for fear of losing funding or for fear of losing a position, then just give way on principle. That's where the UN time and again gets it wrong, unfortunately. The experience of the conflict in Yugoslavia, the proof it brought again of how cruel human beings can be to one another, and in the massacre of Srebrenica, how ineffective the United Nations can be sometimes in preventing such cruelty, might put many people off a continued career in the UN, but not Zaid. Instead, in 2014, he found himself in the frame from one of the toughest UN jobs around, United Nations Human Rights Commissioner. Yes. (laughs) 
I, I sort of felt that it would be the job you do just before retirement because you could never secure a future employment after, <laughs> after it. And uh, so I went for a long walk around Central Park, two, two hour long walk. And that was fa- fatal. If I had just said no, that would have been the end of it. <laughs> well, not fatal, but I, I so once I had to, once I thought about it, I, I, I knew I couldn't say no to it. But I, I decided early on that I, you know, um, having listened to two people in particular, Navi Pele, who I, I was very impressed by, and when I was on the Security Council, when she came to brief us, it was an occasion because she was so unlike the rest of the UN officials. And so it was Navi Pillay and Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch. Navi said, the worst mistake you can do is privilege any any country. No country. Don't privilege any particular grouping or country, which is a fairly obvious point, but it's amazing how many people inside the UN will do that. And then Ken Roth just said to me, come out swinging. Because initially I had thought, well, maybe, you know, I, I should reset some of the relationships and see if I can, you know, actually travel to Tibet and go to China where Navi couldn't. And and he said, come out swinging. And I thought that was the right way because I thought you you come out, they immediately know who they're dealing with. Yeah. But you did, you did come out swinging, didn't you? Really? And you kept on swinging the whole four years. Do you think that swinging achieved anything? There are those who will argue that it doesn't produce much, that you lose your contacts with uh, governments, with states, they, they will ignore you, they'll pull their funding, they'll throw your people out of their countries. And the, the simple fact of the matter is there's no basis, in fact, to actually make those assessments because it's never been done. There is no example in the UN where someone sustained pressure over time has not produced a result. So in one way, the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights is a new experience for the UN over the last 20 years, and every High Commissioner has taken it a notch up. The way that we approached it, uh, Imogen, it wasn't a sort of mutually exclusive condition. I mean, most of my time, I was writing to governments, talking to them, calling them, speaking to them. But I had no hesitation of going public when I felt we needed to go public. I always left room also for them to understand that I could go, go even further, and I would, right? So so they, if they ignored me, it may be to their peril as well. A classic example would be we would demand access to a particular region, and the country would say no. And they would we would say why, and they would say because of the security conditions there. And we'd say, but we have our people everywhere. We have our people in Iraq. We have our people, you know, in, in uh, Libya. We have our people. So why, why not in your country? And they would come up with some ridiculous excuse. So what we would do is we would do the investigation anyway, produce the report. They would then go absolutely mad and charged that the report was filled with factual errors and so forth. And then we would say, fine, okay. And I remember that this is the way India responded to our Kashmir report. And I said, fine, okay, well, then let us in. If it's all wrong, let us in. Did the experiences in Bosnia cement a conviction you already had that human rights was one of the, the fundamental things the UN needed to be 
involved in. You had the famous speech about populist right-wing demagogues. Yes, it was for any young person. It exposed us to the malevolence of nationalism in its worst form. It exposed us to the lies, uh, the half lies, the techniques of populists in cultivating sentiment against what is the apparent truth before everyone. And so when we began to see a return of this sort of nationalistic, populist, chauvinistic sentiment, there was a point at which I had to make a decision. Do I just stay quiet or do I make it intensely personal and go after the populace? And I decided to go after the populace by name. And because I felt my experiences in the former Yugoslavia were adequate warnings as to what happens when you're not upfront early enough saying something. I remember being uh, facing some criticism for speaking about candidate Trump, you know, nine months before he was elected and saying it would be dangerous if he's elected. And, and I was, you know, that this is not something that <laughs> a UN official <laughs> normally knows. But I think it was all from on the basis of my experiences in the former Yugoslavia that you, there were too many things that seemed to resemble what it is that we saw. Zaydrad Al Hussein stuck to his style throughout his four years in office. He took Human Rights Watch Ken Roth's advice to come out swinging, and he kept on swinging. Incidentally, Ken Roth will be joining us on the next Inside Geneva to tell us what he wants to see in a new human rights commissioner. But back to outspokenness and coming out swinging, does it actually work? The current UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres and some argue the departing Commissioner Michel Bachelet have taken a quieter, less confrontational approach – I asked Zaid if he could see the advantage of a more low-key style. I mean, of course, it's not an easy proposition, and I would be the last to say it is. I, I, my feeling always goes back to, or my feeling is based on, on my experiences in the former Yugoslavia, and, and it's, it's fairly simple in the sense that rather than you worry about how they may react to your statements, they ought to be worrying about what you might be saying about them. And it's a question of presence. It's a question of filling in the space. It's a question of speaking with authority and clarity on the basis of knowledge and experience. 75 years of experience in these fields. The UN should have, and it does, have enormous knowledge that it could bring to bear. And it needs to be reckoned with, especially when there is paralysis. It needs to move in decisively with creativity and thought, not this bureaucratic mumbo-jumbo, which is what it all too often thinks, you know, basically <laughs> defaults into. Ultimately, all of that requires a measure of confrontation, a measure of forcing a little bit of respect. And what I worry about is that the UN leadership just simply hasn't absorbed the lessons of the past. They just don't understand it. Um, and, I, you know, the Secretary General, uh, I've always liked him, had a soft spot for him. Um, we worked well together as high commissioners. 
you know, but I, I, I would have wanted him to be more robust. I would have wanted him to be more pointed. He has nothing to lose except for his reputation. And I think he may believe he's acting prudently. But as I've said before, I, I think, uh, you know, most uh, commentators will look back at his period and believe that he was weak. He might say, I've got funding to lose for crucial UN operations around the world. No, well, I no, because I think that's where you get it wrong. You're too worried about yourself. Make them worry about you a little bit, right? Make them worry about you. Make them worry about what you might say. You have power. You're too afraid to, too afraid to use it. What we're seeing, this colossal failure now with COVID-19, it's a, it's a symptom of a colossal failure. And I think much of it is attributable to the way in which these international organizations meet up with the member states, that that balance has been lost. No sense of respect. You're so worried about funding and you're so worried about access that it, it, it inhibits you from doing the, the thing that you're supposed to be doing most. Make them worry. Make them worry about what you might say and bring public opinion with you. And by the way, you have the international press with you most of the time. Is there, just to look at one particular personality, make them a bit worried, make them a bit concerned, maybe even frightened what you might do. Um, how do you think a personality like Donald Trump would behave, though, worried? I'm not a psychiatrist. And clearly, you know, for any psychiatrist, Donald Trump would pose a particular challenge. Look, I would recognise that most of my funding comes extra budgetary. Most of it comes from a Senate markup, not from the White House in any case. And if I keep my relations with Congress on an on a even keel, that funding ought not to be affected. One of the sad aspects about what I saw from my perspective as, as an ambassador and then later in the UN is seldom did I hear the US speak in a way where it addressed, it addressed the global good, right? They always had to package it in a way that it was sellable to the American public that there was a direct national interest to be carved out of being part of the UN, not an address to the global good. And that's the sad part of it. Since we recorded that interview, new variants and waves of COVID have come and gone. Russia's attack on Ukraine has caused a new devastating war in Europe. Rising food and fuel prices are pushing millions towards famine and millions more into poverty. And the veto continues to paralyse the UN Security Council. Back then, I asked Zaid how he would make the UN fit for purpose in the 21st century. His answers seem more relevant than ever. Uh, limit the term of the Secretary General to one six-year period. Uh, limit the term of the High Commissioner for Human Rights to one six-year period and appeal, but we would probably need a sort of General Assembly sort of resolution as backing to it, somehow get the permanent members to desist from using the veto 
when there are credible and ongoing uh, reports of atrocity crimes taking place, because then that unlocks the possibility for collective action. And I think if you got rid of those three, then you get rid of the influence of the member states over the appointments or continuation or that whole thing goes. And we can see the Security Council operating in the way that it ought to be operating. Um, as opposed to the way that it does often operate. The UN is 75, has had all sorts of trials, tribulations, failures and some successes over the last 75 years. Have you got any prognostication for the next 75? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the the future of this organisation? I think the problem for the UN is that it creates its own sense of self-importance. It can be realized through, you know, superlative leadership. And uh, the UN has had some outstanding leaders. The UN has many, many brilliant people in in it. I mean, if we could only just, you know, work in the areas that we're really good at with the brilliant people that we have and inspire sort of leadership and be less bureaucratic this organization can experience a, a revival and and capture the imagination of people if it bends to the the natural default at the moment which is everything is marketing everything is appearances everything is gimmicks it's completely the wrong way of approaching it you speak on principle try not to be uh, afraid if you're not willing to say the right things, you're too desperately terrified of what governments may say, then no amount of gimmick uh, or, or resort to gimmicks is going to solve the general reputational issue of the UN. If, they, if the member states and governments begin to think that you know, these, these UN people, we have to take them seriously you know, on the basis of hold, upholding principle inter- international law, you know, no exclusions, no exceptions. That's where we need to be. But the world needs the United Nations, right? It very desperately needs the UN. But it needs the UN, a well-led UN, and it needs a a UN that's uh, highly respected and reckoned with. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva, In our next episode, I'll be talking to Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch and Agnes Calamar of Amnesty International. I'll be asking them what they want to see from the next UN Human Rights Commissioner and how they think the UN can best do its job of defending human rights and holding violators to account. Do join us then. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. 
In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.